I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. Hello and welcome to a Cheeky Scientist radio show that is going to give you everything that you need to know about industry resumes. If you haven't updated your industry resume since before the pandemic, now is the time. And we're going to talk about the five resume formats that you need to know about, understand, and utilize to get hired into your first or next industry position. We're going to dive deeper and show you exactly how to structure every bullet point, uh, every sentence, every line in your resume uh, for maximum impact, realizing that all of the eye tracking studies that have been done recently confirm that employers only spend five to seven seconds on your resume. So what will they remember in five to seven seconds? We have the data. I'm going to share that with you. I'm not just going to talk about the formats. I'm not just going to talk about the bullet points. I'm going to go through some actual resumes, resumes that I just looked at myself from people in our Cheeky Scientist Association, some of their bullet points and how we walk through them to transform them uh, into information that'll really stick out to employers right now because your resume is still crucial to your job search. We've talked about how, especially during economic downturns, that you can't just upload a resume online and think that you're going to magically get hired. Now, anything is possible. There's always outliers. Uh, but networking, generating referrals, setting up informational interviews is much more important during a recession or an economic downturn uh, than when hiring is at the highest levels that it's ever been, which it was in many countries uh, in 2019. Uh, it's the the landscape is different now, so we have to adjust your resumes. We have to adjust your resume strategy and, and adjust the strategy of your overall job search, which is what this radio show is about. So let's jump in. Let's dive into resumes. We're going to dig deep here. This is uh, my goal for this particular radio show is to give you everything that you need for your resume. So you can walk away from this going, oh, I know exactly how to structure my resume. I know what I need to put on it. I just have to actually do the work of pulling out the skills and the experiences that I have and framing them for the position that I want. Okay, so let's talk about how resumes are used by employers. Uh, most companies have what is called ATS software, applicant tracking system software, which is just a kind of uh, artificial intelligence where your resume is uploaded. It goes into this ATS software and it looks through the keywords on your resume. Um, a lot of them are very advanced. It can look for dates. It can see which words you have bolded, right? Uh, and, and it'll say, oh, this is bolded. It must be important. And it'll check it against its database of other important words that the employer has put in there. Now, the information from the employer, don't expect it to be very up to date. Don't expect the vocabulary, the database to include things like your academic job titles. One of the biggest gains you can make right away is unbolding your academic job titles or changing your work experience section from a chronological format to a functional format, which I'm going to talk about today. But for now, just understand that this AI, this ATS software, it is intelligent in one sense, but it's also very stupid, right? It can only uh, evaluate your keywords based on the keywords in its database. If your academic job titles, if academic words or very high level technical skills are not in its database, it's not going to know those are important. Okay, so how do you get through the ATS software? How can you hack the software, so to speak? We're going to talk about that too. And then once it gets into the hand of an employer's, 
what is, where does your resume go from there? So it gets into the hands of the initial gatekeepers first, the hiring managers, the recruiters, the people very likely without PhDs, the people who might look at your resume and say, why is there a work cited section in their resume? Uh, why do they have the volume and issue number? By the way, they're not even going to know that the volume and issue number are in a publication uh, record on your resume. They're not going to know what those numbers mean. It's just going to make you come across as an academic, and it's going to make you uh, distance yourself from those hiring managers who don't have PhDs. They're not thinking, oh, wow, a PhD, they have a work cited section, all these really high-level technical skills that sound so important. Their vocabulary is better than mine. I like them more now. Nope. Usually it's just the opposite. They're using high-level technical skills. They have a works-sided section. All they're focused on is academic stuff. Uh, they're acting superior than me, or they're ta not talking my language. Uh, I don't want to look at this resume anymore. That is the cold, hard truth. So how do you get past those initial gatekeepers, and then what happens next? Because your resume will stay with you through an entire interaction with the company, right? The initial gatekeepers will have it. They'll pass that resume on to somebody internally, to anyone in a cross-functional department that might be on a panel interview with you. They'll, they'll uh, hand it to a uh, whatever the director is, the person that you will be reporting directly to will look at that resume. And a lot of people have questions. Well, certainly the person I'm going to be reporting to wants to see my publications. Maybe, maybe not. That's why your publications, like your references, are available upon request, which you can put at the bottom of your resume. We're going to get into that, but let's see it all the way through. Your resume will stay with you to the end after you come out for a site visit or if you have a virtual interview and they decide to hire you or, or are about to decide to hire you. They're going to get together with their hiring committee and they're going to pass around, you guessed it, your resume. Okay, so your resume is crucial. You can't send out the same resume for the same uh, job title if it's at two different companies. Every resume needs to be targeted for an individual position at an individual company. This is very important information. So what should your resume look like? If you're uploading your academic CV, you're doing it wrong. Okay, Your resume for an industry position at most should be two pages. That's it. No exceptions. No extra line or two on a third page. It must be two pages, and that is it. Now, when I say resume, I'm using the word resume, uh, even though your country, they might use the word CV. Uh, you could have an academic CV versus an industry CV. I'm using the word resume. They can be used interchangeable. The key is th this is the document that you're going to hand in for an industry job, for consideration with an industry job. Now, what we consider the gold standard resume based on thousands of PhDs who have used it in our Cheeky Scientist Association, and they've used it to get hired over and over again, is our, our gold standard format. It's our gold standard template. It's two pages. So if you don't know where to start, I recommend using two pages. You want lots of white space. Let me ask you this. I, on our webinars that we do uh, quite frequently on resumes, I always ask this question. I say, have you ever gone into a document and gone into the margins and decreased the margin so you could fit more information on that resume? If you're a PhD, the answer is likely yes. Have you ever gone into the 1.5 spacing under the paragraph section in Word or similar, and you've changed it to one spacing, right? Or, or 0.5, so you can fit more information on the page. I have to tell you, that is abnormal. Okay, that's something that PhDs do 
Regular people do not do that. The people that are reading your resumes, the hiring managers, the recruiters, they're the ones that you went to school with, perhaps in university and college, who got a five-page paper assigned to them, a five-page essay, and they went into the margins and they increased the size of the margins. They went from 1.5 spacing to double spacing or even beyond. Okay, These are the people reading your resumes. They don't want a lot of clutter. They don't want huge blocks of text. Okay, they're only spending five to seven seconds on it. This has been proven time and time again by peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed eye-tracking studies in scientific journals. Shows it over and over again. So you have a two-page resume. This is your gold standard format. What are the sections? First, on any type of resume, the top one-third of the resume is called the visual center. Why is it called the visual center? Because those eye-tracking studies show that if you um, take a bunch of readouts for, from an eye-tracking study, where every individual readout looks like a heat map, um, and you lay them on top of each other. Once you lay hundreds or thousands on top of each other, the heat map forms an F shape because this is what people's eyes naturally do when they see a resume or any web page or document. When they're skimming it, they'll skim across the top first from left to right. That makes the top bar, the top horizontal bar of the F. Then they'll skim down the left-hand side which makes the vertical bar of the F, then they'll skim back up and across somewhere in the middle, usually at the start of the work experience section, if you have your resume formatted correctly. So they're looking first across that top one third. That's the top horizontal bar of the F. What do you need to have in that section? Your contact information, right? So you have your name on the left, left justified, and then you have your uh, phone number, you have your email, you have your LinkedIn URL. Only those three things. Do not put your city and state, country, province, etc. Do not put that information on your resume. Okay, it's important because that information, like a lot of information that many PhDs put on their resume, could only be used against you. Okay, even if you're saying, "Well, I want this job in this city, and I'm from this city," shouldn't I put it on there? No, because what if somebody else applies who is in a closer neighborhood, right? Who can walk to work? You don't know. It can be used against you. There's no value of having that on there. Now, one question I get from a lot of PhDs, and I, I got this question last week is, well, what if when I'm uploading my resume, they make me put in my address or my dates or my month? Look, there is an arms race going on between employers and job candidates, and it's been going on for decades. Uh, for example, when you upload a resume, many uh, job postings will now ask you for your starting salary or your salary expectations. You used to be able to leave it blank. Then you used to be able to put in special characters instead of a number. Now they force you to put in numbers because they're trying to get information from you at that first step for one reason and one reason only, to weed you out. That is it. They're not collecting information initially. To uh, They're not collecting it for positive reasons. They're not looking for that one key bit of information or insight where they're going to say, oh, they have what I need, or that's the address I was looking for, or that's the month I was looking for, or there's no gap. No, no, no. They're looking to weed you out first. That's why they're using ATS software in the first place. Um, so it's important for you to keep that in mind first. Your job in this arms race, so to speak, is to not include any information that can be used against you and to try to get your resume by avoiding all of these uh, weeding out checkpoints into the hands of an employer, which is why it's always the best, uh, always the best way to get hired is to format your resume correctly, put the right information in there, set up an informational interview and pass it to an employee working at a company you want to work for, or pass it directly to a recruiter or hiring manager with a reference on it in the cover letter from an employee at the company who you've had an informational interview 
with. Let's go back to that visual center. So your contact details are there and your professional summary. That's it. That's all that you'll have space for in the top one third. Your professional summary, sh summary should include your three biggest career highlights. The header, right, should just be professional summary. And then three bullet points. What goes in those bullet points? That's coming up. Right after that is your work experience section, not your education. If your education is at the top, you are doing it wrong. Employers hate that. They really don't like it because you're leading with your education, which you think is important, but they're an industry. It's, it's time to work, okay? It's time to have work experience at the forefront, even if you only have academic experience. I can tell you uh, what you need to do if that's the case, and I will coming up. After your work experience, now this will usually take you to your second page. The work experience section needs to have uh, two uh, work experience or job titles or skills listed as in two segments in your work experience section, at least uh, no more than three. I know a lot of PhDs try to do the fifth or sixth or seventh work experience section because they had something that they did in undergrad or in high school that they think might be relevant. Uh, take your most relevant information and put it at the top. Don't think that your work experience section has to be chronological. You can do it in order of relevancy. It's called a functional format. And I'm teasing it again because we are going to talk about it next. The next session, so we have your contact details, uh, so your name and contact details, then, your, then the professional summary, then your work experience, and now you should be on page two for your education section. Your PhD is enough. If you just have your PhD, that's fine. Now, you don't need your PhD, your master's, your bachelor's, your high school. Just do the top two at the most, right? PhD and master's. Uh, for some of you, your, your master's and PhD kind of went hand in hand. So you could say PhD and then say where you got your bachelor's from. Uh, but don't build out that section too much because then you're going to run out of space. The second to last section is your technical skills section. This can be instrumentation, techniques, software, uh, reagents, certification, foreign languages uh, that you speak, second or third languages. Any information can go there. That section is uh, pretty much only for recruiters. Now, recruiters, they get a list of technical skills from the company that they, they have a partnership with. And so what they do is they try to match the technical skills on their list with the technical skills in your technical skills section, which is why you might want to reformat your uh, resume if you're giving it to a recruiter slightly. And that's one of the formats that we're gonna, going to discuss too. The last section, affiliations, awards, hobbies. Uh, you can call it uh, awards, affiliations, hobbies, right? Uh, awards and hobbies. Don't make these three or four different sections. Put them all together in one section. If it's certifications, uh, affiliations, hobbies, that's fine. In general, I like the title of affiliations and hobbies. Try to have a couple of bullet points there. Try to include something in that last bullet point that is not technical, uh, not STEM, not PhD related, not academic related, but something, a hobby, something that humanizes you, something that the bulk of the population, whether or not they even went to college, can relate to. Again, a, a sport, a hobby, a volunteer experience that's not technical is something great to go there because people, those eye tracking studies, they, they pause ever so slightly at the very bottom, like we all do when we get to the bottom of a, doc, a document to feel that sense of completion. So that last line is a great place to put something that humanizes you. That's the first format. That's what you want to stick with. Now we have uh, these resume templates. We cycle through them in terms of offering them for free uh, to you. If you go to our website, cheekyscientist.com, there's a drop down at the top 
one of these resumes that I'm going to go through, one of the formats uh, you can download for free there. Uh, the second format is exactly like the first, except for the work experience section. This second format is called a functional format. Okay, the functional format. Now, what is the difference between a functional format and the gold standard format? It's just the work experience section. Instead of doing your work experience section in chronological order, you want to do it in the order of relevance. What does that mean? So you have a job posting. You're applying to a job or there's a certain job you heard about through an informational interview. You're tailoring your resume to make it as specific as possible for that job. And you're going a step further where you're tailoring the work experience section specifically for that job. So if you only have academic job titles, if you don't have industry experience, I highly recommend this format. Uh, I, I didn't invent it. We didn't invent it, a cheeky scientist, but we have brought it to the forefront for PhDs. It's been around for decades. Instead of putting graduate research assistant or postdoctoral fellow, and then the university and the dates at the right, what you do instead is you bold, instead of bolding graduate research assistant, which is not going to show up in the database of the ATS software, uh, employers aren't going to recognize that as a valuable job title. Instead, you bold the skills. You bold either a transferable skill or a technical skill that's relevant to the job that you want. And then you say underneath it, gained as a graduate research assistant at XYZ University. You're not hiding in any information. You're just leading with the information that showcases you in the best way. You're leading with the information that's going to give you a second chance, so to speak, that's going to leave the best first impression. Think about it if you're an employer who has never, doesn't have a PhD. They've never been in a graduate program. They've never been, been in a lab or they've never worked as a TA, et cetera. They got out of college or university 20 years ago. Those academic job titles are not going to mean anything to them. They're scanning the resume for five to seven seconds with the key technical skills and transferable skills that they're looking for in their mind, and that's it. And if they don't see them, uh, if they somehow miss them, they're not going to give your resume a second look. So lead with those instead. So instead of saying graduate research assistant, right, uh, in the work experience section, uh, bolded like a lot of us do with our the university and maybe the date to the right, uh, right justified. Instead of doing that, you could say micro RNA expertise. You could say project management skills, and then underneath it, say gained as a postdoctoral fellow at XYZ University. The third format is the recruiter format that I referred to earlier. The only difference on this format, it's also two pages, is you're taking that technical skill section and you're moving it to the first page right underneath the professional summary. Why are you doing this? Because you're giving this resume directly to a recruiter and their first step is to look at that technical skills list from the employer and compare it to the technical skills list on your resume. That is the only difference. It's a small difference, but it makes a big difference. The fourth format, a combination format. Now, we didn't invent this, but we saw it trending upwards. We saw it working for a lot of PhDs, and I wanted to include it. A combination format is a way to make your resume even more specific for the job at hand. And it's my favorite resume for this economic downturn, for the recession, because specificity uh, indicates safety specificity indicates certainty. And employers right now, they want the most certain choice. They want the safest choice. They're looking to avoid risk and to avoid pain during the recession. This is the resume that I highly, highly recommend. 
um, during an economic downturn. And remember, you can always experiment with these resumes. And also remember, there's always outliers and you need to take in whatever information is specific to the job you want and apply that. I always have PhDs message me, right? Because we all like to challenge people and challenge, you know, whatever's called the gold standard, the best practice, um, which I encourage. Uh, and one of the challenges that I always get is, well, my friend said so-and-so, or I talked to so-and-so, and they said that they used this resume and it didn't work, et cetera. So what? That's an N of one. You heard it from somebody? Like, what are you talking about? We've worked with thousands of PhDs and we've gotten them hired. Our N value is going to be a lot higher. However, however, outliers do exist. And specificity, once again, always wins. The context always matters. So if, if your friend happens to be somebody that you set up an informational interview with who's working at the company you want to work for, and they tell you, this company likes to see this on your resume, do what they say, but only for that position because every resume is specific. If you are talking to a recruiter or a hiring manager and they say, we actually want this section on your resume. And I haven't discussed it and I uh, don't discuss it in any of these five formats. Great. Do what they say because they're at that company. Okay. There's always outliers. These are the best practices. Back to the combination format. The only difference with the combination format is that there's a key industry skill section and that's the subtitle or title um, of that section. So you have your contact details at the top and your professional summary in the visual center. Okay, notice that all of these formats have that at the top. That's, that's crucial. That belongs in the visual center always. But right in, underneath that, you have a key industry skills section. Now, in the bullet points throughout your resume, I'm going to get to the structure of those. They all need to start with a transferable skill and end with a quantified result and then be sandwiched together with your technical expertise. That's the case for all bullet points on your resume, except the bullet points in the key industry skills section on a combination format. Now, what is a key industry skill section? It's basically an elongation of the professional summary. And as a reminder, the professional summary has your three biggest career highlights. The key industry skill section takes a skill from the job posting or a skill that you learned about during an informational interview for an unposted job, and it highlights that skill and exactly how you've used it to achieve a result. So you're just making your resume highly, highly targeted for the position. It could be a transferable skill or a technical skill. You want five bullet points in the key industry skill section. So you have five skills, the five most important skills for the job that you want, and you're highlighting those in this key industry skill section. So it could look like for a technical skill, you could say um, immunohistochemistry uh, skills and expertise. Uh, used an XYZ situation to achieve ABC result. And it could be a transferable skill that they're asking for. It could say scientific due diligence uh, and expertise preparing patents resulting in five patent applications. Okay, so highlight the skill at the very beginning, whatever it is, it could be a technical skill or a transferable skill at the very beginning of each of those five bullet points in that key industry skill section, which is only used on the combination format. Provide the context you use them in, you used that skill in, and the result that you achieved, and try to make the context and the result relevant for the position. Now, this is different than the gold standard bullet point format and structure I'm going to go through with you uh, after we get through the, the fifth resume format uh, here, which is called a sidebar format. Sidebar format. A lot of PhDs are seeing these sidebar resumes online and they're using them, but they're making them two pages, which just 
makes you look ridiculous because it's a sidebar format and the purpose of a sidebar format is to get two pages onto one page. The whole purpose of it being a sidebar resume is so you can take page one and put it on the left-hand side of the, of the bar and then page two on the right side of the bar. Now, it doesn't exactly work that way, but basically it lets you put two pages of information uh, about on one page. This format is really, really good for client-facing uh, positions. It's really We're seeing it work really well in the medical science liaison industry. Uh, we're seeing it work well in uh, marketing, marketing communications. We're seeing it work well in, in those commercialization positions. So remember, there's a spectrum of innovation and commercialization where commercialization can include anything from supply chain to manufacturing to uh, uh, deeper uh, individual positions, QA, QC. It can include... Uh, positions be before the treatment or the product, the service goes to market, quote unquote, go to market, uh, or afterwards, right? After the product or service is already in market, and then it's supported through uh, technical support, sales, marketing, and so forth. So for those commercialization positions, especially the ones that are client-facing, especially anything in, in support, uh, marketing, and sales, this sidebar format works really well because it shows that you can be concise uh, it essentially symbolizes that you, as a PhD who has all of this complex information, understands your audience well enough to be able to communicate things simply, which is so important for those uh, types of positions. Okay, so don't overthink it. Remember, you can try all of these. Consider these five formats as tools in your toolbox. What does a sidebar format look like? On the left-hand side of the sidebar, which can be an actual line, uh, going down your resume, you add, you add a vertical line, a black vertical line, a thin one, or you just have a, a gap, a space. And it's not right down the center. It's usually a little bit off center to the left. On the left-hand side, you have the simpler information, the shorter information, or at least the information that can be presented in shorter lines, such as your contact details. Uh, your name's usually at the top and centered, but then on the left-hand side of this bar, you have your contact details. Then you have your skills, just a list of skills. It's like your technical skills section, but it can just be called skills. And then underneath that, you have your education. On the right-hand side, you have your professional summary, where you'd still include your three bullet points, and then your work experience section. And your work experience section might only have one uh, segment, uh, two at the most. Those are the five different formats. Okay, so how do you structure the bullet points on your resume? You understand the formats of the resume. Uh, that we just discussed. We've talked about a lot of background information, how to use your resume, how employers use your resume. Let's get into the weeds. Let's talk about a bullet point in your professional summary. What should that look like? To, uh, to go into this discussion, I first need to tell you that employers, especially those in initial gatekeepers, they're not concerned as much about you as a PhD having technical skills. They understand that you can learn complex technical information. If they either assume that you have the technical skills that are needed for the position, or you can learn them because a PhD is a doctor of philosophy. Philosophy is knowledge and the ability to ascertain knowledge. You are in a very literal sense, a doctor of learning. You, you have learned how to teach yourself any technical skill, any skill, how to do anything at the highest level of education. Uh, this is why less than 2% of the population has a PhD. So when an employer is evaluating you, they're not thinking, man, I really need to test them on this whole PhD thing. I really need to test their technical skills. They haven't gone to school long enough 
um, for me to be certain that they can understand complex information, that they can learn complex information, that they can learn highly technical information. That's not their concern. Their concern is you lack communication skills. You lack time management skills. Their concern is you are going to get hired, come into their company, work on their team, and then disrupt their team, that you're not going to fit into their culture, that you have no business acumen. You have no product or market knowledge, no project management experience, no risk mitigation experience. Not so much that you don't actually have those skills or experiences, but that you don't value them and that you, and that you don't know how to communicate them. And so when they see that you lack some of these basic transferable skills on your resume, it's a red flag. It's one of the biggest problems for PhDs in getting a job in industry because all of us as PhDs, we like things that sound really complex. We learn to make things sound more complex than it actually is, to sound as intelligent as possible to get a peer-reviewed journal article published. We learn to use words like moreover or furthermore when they're not necessary at all to make a point. Okay, so when it comes to your resume, you have to simplify. When it comes to getting an industry job, you have to first show that you have these basic skills. The fact that you don't include them doesn't mean that they're assumed. It means that, oh, you may not, you either don't have them or you don't even realize their importance. Even something as simple as resource management, time management. This is why every bullet point on a PhD level resume needs to start with a transferable skill. We have a great transferable skill ebook. Uh, if you just Google cheeky scientist transferable skills ebook, you can find it. Some examples of these skills are regulatory awareness, client facing skills, professional awareness, time management, as I mentioned, resource management, risk management, risk mitigation, conflict resolution, project management, change management, knowledge of current industry trends, commercial acumen, business acumen, product and market knowledge. Look around your lab, your classroom, look around where you are now. You're surrounded by uh, products that a company made. Okay, and any product that is around you indicates a company that made it that you could get hired at and you're more likely to get hired at that company because you have knowledge of their product whereas other people may not and if you've used one company's product imagine uh, a kit in a lab like a kaigen kit you've used that kit but you've also used another kit a competitor's kit now you have market knowledge just understanding these words using words like collaboration even better cross functional collaboration which means you have the ability to get things done with people you have no authority over. That's how you start every bullet point. To simplify it, let's just say, okay, I'm making my first bullet point. I want to show I have leadership skills. So it starts with leadership skills. Now, every bullet point needs to also end with a quantified result. When I say that, a lot of PhDs have a mini panic attack because they think, I don't have any results. That's your imposter syndrome talking. Of course you do. Publications. If you don't have any publications, number of presentations, the actual numerical number, those eye tracking studies I talked about, um, they show that people's eyes stop on numbers, so employers will spend more time on your resume if it has numerical numbers, the actual numbers, right? Um, so seven, the number, not S-E-V-E-N. Number of presentations, number of collaborations, number of, this is an important one that a lot of you don't realize is highly valuable in industry, number of optimized and or innovative methodologies. A methodology, a protocol, a lesson plan, it's a system Systems are highly valuable skills. Systems allow businesses to scale. Number of discoveries, number of patents, number of grants, number of grant funding. You have results. And then you sandwich those two things together with your technical expertise. An example would be a very easy example. Leadership skills. There's the transferable skill. 
leadership skills, and experience managing research professionals on collaborative projects. That's your research experience. That is a technical experience. That's the sandwich. That's the meat of the sandwich in the middle, resulting in eight publications and $250,000 in lab grant funding. If your lab, your classroom, et cetera, has a grant, you can say what your work, your work has led or helped lead to that grant or is funded by that grant. It's a great way to add a number and a monetary value on your resume, showing employers you understand the importance of generating money or revenue uh, in terms of, of a company. Let's do another example. Knowledgeable innovator with expertise in bioinformatics and nanotechnology. As evidenced by, notice this language, this transition language in the middle of that sentence you can use to get to the result, right? In the first example, it was resulting in. Here it was as evidenced by. You could use uh, as demonstrated by. And then to finish this bullet point, uh, as evidenced by three patents and the recent discovery of two new medical treatments. One of the biggest mistakes that PhDs make when they try to finish their bullet points is they get stuck thinking about a result they've achieved and they just decide not to include it. Or they think that the number of years of experience that they have is somehow a result. It's not. Just putting 10 years of experience or five years of experience in this field means nothing to an employer. As you read through the first bullet points you come up with, ask yourself this question at the end. So what? That'll help you get to the actual result. And the end result is always the most important result. Don't do any hand-waving in your resume. They will notice. They're looking for those skills, the skills, the transferable skills, the technical skills in particular that are on the job posting. That's how you find the skills they care about. They're on the job posting. Or you interview somebody who works at the company to find out their, their language, the jargon they use specifically at that company, so you can put it on your resume. And you include results. And don't evaluate your results too harshly. It's not so much about what your result is. It's more about the fact that you communicate your results and you show that you know that results are important. They want to make sure that you don't still have an academic mindset where you're worshiping your past experience and your duties overall and your technical skills only. They, they want to see that you understand what's important in industry, results, right? metrics of success, the transferable skills that allow you to get along with the team and to scale up what you're doing technically. This is crucial. Okay, let's close out today's radio show by looking at some actual examples. These are resumes that I received last week and that I walked through. Um, I'm going to look at a couple of specific bullet points from actual PhDs and give you my suggestions. Uh, imagine yourself handing in a resume in our Cheeky Scientist Association where we give you unlimited resume reviews and edits and, and getting some of this advice yourself because it can be hard when you first start. A great exercise for getting your bullet points right is to get three different colored note cards or just get a piece of paper with three columns and just start creating a list of all the different transferable skills you have that you can come up with. Um, that, that you do, and trust me, you do have these skills. A lot of us think we don't have transferable skills or that we need a certification in them. You don't. Don't overthink it. You have project management skills. How many projects have you had to manage just to get your PhD, just to put your thesis together? Then in that second column, put your, trans, uh, your technical skills. The third column, make a list of, of your quantified results. And do it without your internal editor turned on. Just make a, a brainstorming list and then mix and match them until you come up with the best three bullet points for your professional summary. So this bullet point uh, came in, 
And we're going to talk about how you can make it uh, better, how you could improve it. So I read this bullet point last week on a resume from a PhD, established protocols in numerous techniques with the ability to learn quickly and adapt to new challenges. Established protocols in numerous techniques with the ability to learn quickly and adapt to new challenges. So ask yourself, what's missing? How can we make this better? Now, I, I like that it's concise. That's good. Uh, a lot of PhDs will try to squeeze in some extra adjectives or instead of just putting one transferable skill at the beginning, they're like, well, it's going to be better to have three transferable skills at the beginning, right? No. Remember, you want lots of white space. So I like that it's concise. However, there's no quantified result, right? With the ability to learn quickly and adapt to new challenges, ask the question, so what? What do these skills lead to? Establish protocols. What does that mean? So if you're talking about protocols, one thing I like to recommend in terms of a transferable skill is regulatory awareness, documentation skills, uh, record-keeping skills. These are highly valuable. All PhDs have them. They're very valuable, especially during a recession when people, employers are trying to reduce risk. So I would start with regulatory awareness instead. Also, the original bullet point says, establish protocols in numerous techniques. Numerous techniques, there's hand-waving there. What specific techniques? You should be mentioning techniques that are specific for the position you're applying to in that case. So regulatory acumen and expertise in ABC specific technique, which is listed on their job posting ideally, the exact technique that they're looking for. And instead of the ability to learn quickly and adapt to new challenges, now that's more transferable skills at the end. We already put the transferable skills at the beginning. We went into the technical expertise. Now we need a result, resulting in right three cross-functional collaborations, XYZ lab grant funding, a presentation on it, um, uh, publications, even just discoveries, three discoveries in this field because of those skills. That's how I would adapt that bullet point. So that's where a lot of PhDs start. They make a list. They they start to mention some of their transferable skills or technical skills. They, they just end up cramming a lot of those skills in, and then they really struggle to come up with a result. They question their results so much that they would rather not include them than include a result. Because in academia, we're taught not to take credit for anything. But on your resume, you have to advocate for yourself. You have achieved results. And it's not about the level of the results, so to speak. It's just about the fact that you know how to communicate results, that you realize results are important. Let's look at one more to take us to the end of the radio show. Key opinion leader, and then in parentheses, KOL, relationship manager with expertise in pharmaceutics and products and fields relevant to medical affairs, as demonstrated by 16 peer-reviewed publications with clinicians and four collaborative medical grants. So now this is on the other end of the spectrum in terms of being concise, right? It seems a little bit long. It's a little bit of a run-on. There's a lot of information there. But if you listen carefully, um, it's done very, very well. There's a, there's, the, there's a transferable skill at the beginning. Key opinion leader. By the way, this is a clinician. This can be a, another PhD, a PI. It can be somebody at a company who's a CEO, uh, somebody in the C-suite or a vice president. It's an important person. And in fields like the medical science liaison field, the medical affairs field, uh, many other positions, application scientists, they deal with these key opinion leaders. They're usually the people that are uh, beta testing new instruments or new treatments. They're people that are using uh, drugs that, are, that have passed clinical trials first. 
That's what a KOL is. So KOL relationship manager, what I love about this is that they wrote out key opinion leader and they use the acronym KOL because you're not sure which is in the applicant tracking system software's database. Okay, so the relationship manager, that key opinion leader relationship manager, that's the transferable skill. Managing relationships, crucial transferable skill. Then the bullet point goes on to say, with expertise, right? So now we're introducing those technical skills with expertise in pharmaceutics and products and fields relevant to medical affairs. This is an example, like we all do, of a PhD trying to add as much information as possible to a small space. So pharmaceutics isn't enough and products isn't enough. So we had to add fields, right? So it's in pharmaceutics and products and fields. Fields is going to be implied here. So I would take that out and just say with expertise in pharmaceutics and products relevant to medical affairs, relevant, that word should be one of your new favorite words when it comes to resumes. Because if you don't have the exact skill that's on a job posting, you likely have a skill like it and you can use the word relevant to bring it up instead, right? So you can say the skill that's on the job posting in your resume by using the word relevant. So you can put the word that's in the database of the ATS software, even if you don't actually have that skill by talking about having ABC skill relevant to XYZ specific skill that's on the job posting. And then finally, as demonstrated by 16 peer reviewed publications, and you might be able to shorten that. You could say 16 publications, uh, 16 journal publications with clinicians and four collaborative medical grants. If you can get two results in there, that's great, but don't be afraid to choose just one result, the most important one, without feeling like you have to tack on another. So hopefully those examples help you. Hopefully going through these resume formats, the ideal bullet point structure, everything else that we talked about today will help you get an industry resume uh, put together for this economic downturn, no matter how long it, it lasts, so that you can dominate the job market. And before we end this show, I want to remind you, if you are looking to get hired in industry, the best way to get hired is to join the Cheeky Scientist Association. There are over 10,000 PhDs in industry in the association. It is a pre-made job referral network for you to help you get hired. Getting a referral Getting into an, a network of people who can hold you accountable, who can give you expert advice from over 100 different countries is invaluable during uh, this time of economic crisis, during this time where you're thinking, how can I protect my career? How can I continue to move my career forward despite everything else that's going around me? You can learn more about the Cheeky Scientist Association by going to phdsgethired.com, phdsgethired.com. That's just an easy way. Uh, to remember it here by audio, that'll take you to the informational page for the Cheeky Scientist Association. If you decide to join and become a lifetime member, this is a rare program where there's no recurring monthly fees. There's no recurring annual fees. Once you're in, you're a lifetime member. We have associates who are getting their fourth, fifth, even sixth position in industry who have been with us this last decade uh, from the very beginning. Because once you're in the association, you're an associate for life. You don't just get access to that job referral network. You get access to a training dashboard that we continue to add to with hundreds of training videos, multiple courses and everything from resumes, LinkedIn profiles, uh, interviewing, and much more. Uh, we give you unlimited resume reviews and edits in that private community of uh, all those PhDs working in industry. Our goal is to get as many PhDs hired as possible. You can get hired just remember your value. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.
Just the- 